Hi and welcome to the Sunday Lunch Project Manager podcast for the 31st of January 2021. This is your host Nigel Creaser and we have uh, Andy Murray on today from the Major Projects Association find out about his career in project management. But we'll be back in a minute with the news. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, then please get in touch at sundaylunchpmpod at nigelcreaser.com. So this week, um, it's been an interesting week, a few things going on. Um, I've been um, getting involved with some volunteer work with the PMI, which I will uh, tell you more about at a later date. Just a few things, a uh, couple of things there that is uh, exciting. A great bunch of people uh, in the PMI, and uh, uh, we've got a, uh, a Strava group for the UK PMI, PMI UK chapter, um, where uh, we were been tracking uh, a group of us's exercises as well, which is quite entertaining. I was top of the tree at 1.1 for one week in the last few weeks, which I was chuffed with, uh, until the cyclists started. Uh, a little unfair, the cyclists were riding for like four or five hours, and I'm running for two at most. Um, but yeah, it's a giggle, it gives a bit, of, a bit of motivation for, for people, and uh, it is an area that us as project managers and, and in the project management role, especially with this remote working at the minute, that um, our health, we need to uh, kind of think about really, and... Uh, sometimes make some changes um so that's yeah that's exciting what else has happened um we've had um uh the podcast listed on pmo leader so if you found us through pmo leader uh it's a great site uh, if uh yeah you, they've got a load of wealth of information it's just in its um sort of starting up way i think and uh, there's some really good good stuff on there uh so i urge you take a look um book editing well that's uh, gone i got a good run at it for a couple of days um and then uh, sort of stalled but yeah i'm getting there i'm 35 percent through the edit um the interesting thing is as i'm editing uh, it's getting longer which i uh, expected it to get shorter but that's uh, that's how it goes i suppose and still not brave enough yet to die- decide on a um a launch date um i was I was tempted to set it up as a, a on pre-order on uh, Amazon Kindle the other day, but uh, I think it was uh, a uh, um, a message in the fact that I had problems uploading some of the the draft documents, and um, it stopped me moving on to the thing and make it available on for pre-order. So perhaps that was a message to pull my finger out and sort it. So I'm working on that. Um, Interview-wise, that's been going really uh, well. I've had. Uh, obviously, we've got Andy Murray today. Uh, next uh, next month, or sometime during during the month, I will have uh, John Quigley, John John M Quigley, who I interviewed uh, the other day. Uh, really interesting uh, interview, as they all are. 
um, and we've got the, the Sarah Hoban interview which I'm holding on to. Um, we also uh, schedule for later in the month, the, I'll be interviewing Ramon Vulings, the idea DJ, uh, talking about innovation and cross, um, uh, cross industry uh, innovation. Um, and he's got a new book out, um, uh, Great Leaders Mix and Match, uh, which comes out, I think it's sometime in March, but we'll find out from Ramon later in, uh, in the month. Um, and oh, talking of, of book launches and stuff, Colin D. Ellis has just launched his Culture Hacks book. Um, is now available uh, everywhere where you can good quality books. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I I highly recommend anything that Colin's done. Um, the uh, uh, culture and how we um, change culture in our projects, change culture in organisation is a fascinating area. Um, I suppose it's the 31st end of the month and I know there's a few people doing it, um, resolutions this month and whilst not a, a New Year's resolution as such I just decided at the beginning of the month to start running at least a mile a day um, really to kind of kickstart my year, kickstart my health because um, I found myself over Christmas uh, knocking on the door of 100 kilos and um, I don't know if I mentioned before I'm a uh, as one of my hobbies I do judo and uh, I fight at uh, under 90 kilos um, so uh, as 2.2 pounds per kilo that's 22 pounds over my fighting weight um, specifically which is uh, when I saw that on the scales I was um, uh, a bit shocked it's been a gradual roll up and then Christmas added the knock on to uh, because of lockdown and all that sort of stuff so I wanted to get moving I wanted to I do something and I've, I've been really enjoying it to be quite honest I've got uh, a mile to run today at some point and that's going to put me into that's going to be 58 miles uh, I may even do two or three to knock on this tempted to get to that 60 miles uh, today and um, which takes me to last year my movement and I think it's, it's way above this uh, but running I think by the end of June last year, I'd done 72 miles. Uh, so I'm, I'm part way through June from my movement point of view and chuffed. And as I said earlier, it's project management and, and our tendency to be stuck on calls, stuck on a, on a laptop I found during lock, sort of certainly in the autumn last year, a real difficulty to get outdoors, get some sunlight. And I really felt it both my mental health and my physical health. So I think it's something we all need to think about. Um, in the UK here, we've entered another lockdown in January in, in January time. Um, it's been extended longer than we all hoped for. And those um, discipline of, of stepping out uh, and, and getting some time. And I saw a concept, and we've been trying to apply it, and I think I've mentioned it even on here before, but I heard, saw it written down as a concept of the golden hour, um, your, your lunch break um, instigating it organisationally and you, you may want to do this on your projects are saying right we don't work at we don't have meetings it's probably better between X and X personally I think two till, uh, 12 till 2 and then um, that, that really frees up an hour for you to have some lunch and an hour for you to do some work rather than be in meetings um, and 
if that's done, I think the productivity, my certainly my productivity, and certainly my energy levels in the afternoon are way higher. So, um, yeah, that's my thoughts. Um, I think that's it, really. I don't think there's anything uh, else to tell you. Other, just handing you on to the conversation with Andy. So enjoy this, and I'll talk to you after. the record button and it should tell you that it's recording so that gdpr and all that sort of stuff has it appeared yet yep i can see there's a recording at my end yep brilliant um the other thing before i forget it uh with each of the interview um podcasts my intent though not yet come to fruition since i started this this style of, of conversation a couple of years ago was um, to kind of gather them all the key and salient points about people's backgrounds and put it into a little book. So up to you, no pressure one way or the other, whether you would um, be happy for me to do that, but it's kind of just to kind of do a book of um, background interviews of a lot of people with, with interesting elements in it. And just, uh, I think it would be, um, an interesting book for me, if uh, me starting out on my career, understanding other people's backgrounds. Mm, yeah, so, sounds good. So, uh, right. Let's uh, get on with it then. Today, I'd like to welcome Andy Murray, Executive Director of the Major Projects Association, a Chartered Director, uh, a Fellow of the Institute of Directors, and a member of the Association for Project Management. He's also the Deputy Chair of the APM Governance SIG Committee and was co-lead author on P3M3 version three and lead author on Prince two, uh, 2009 and a contributing author to the IPA's project initiation route map, uh, some mouthful, uh, and contributor to the APM BOC version six. Uh, Andy, thank you for coming on the show and welcome. Well, thank you for inviting me. And uh, yeah, thanks for a great introduction as well. It's all right. There's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff there, which I'm sure we're going to get into. Um, and um, some of the listeners will have heard before. This is our second visit from the Major Projects Association. So um, uh, we'll, we'll dig a bit into that as well um, after that. So, But let's, let's start right back at the beginning um, uh, of you and where you're from and things like that. So where, where was it you, you were born then, Andy? Yes, I'm originally from Hertfordshire, born in uh, one of the um, the post-war new towns uh, called Stevenage. Um, same same place as Lewis Hamilton. Um, right. Yeah, so it's a uh, um, yeah, it's a great great place. You know, um, you know it's, it's one of the the early new towns. We had cycle tracks and you know lots of green space. And uh, you know, I think for the uh, certainly for my parents' generation, that moved there uh, mostly out of London. Uh, um, uh, areas um it was it was a big big change for them um yeah it's a, it a good, good place to grow up yeah. so, and where do you live now uh, i now live on the wirral and uh, i've been a bit of a of a nomad um since uh, um my, my late teens so uh, i went to university down in in brighton um then uh, for, for a brief spell went back to uh, where I'm from in uh, in Hertfordshire, Stevenage, and worked for a, a technology firm where, where I graduated with. Um, but then after that, I, I, I moved around a fair bit. So I, I lived in Spain for a while um, through work. Uh, likewise, uh, lived in, in Ireland, Republic of Ireland in Dublin, um, and, uh, and, and I've also worked uh, overseas in the Middle East and, and I've traveled a fair bit. But uh, 
15 or so years ago, uh, no, 20 years ago, now I uh, moved to the uh, to the northwest, originally to North Wales, um, oh, yeah. uh, and that was mostly sort of lifestyle choice. Um, so where was, biking. That, where was that in North Wales then? Um, in the in a village outside Wrexham, so on the borders. Um, oh, right, so yeah. A village called Copeth. Um, oh, I know Copeth. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Near a place called Landegla, which is now yeah. sort of renowned for its mountain biking, yes. and I actually moved up there. Uh, you know, I'm a keen mountain biker, and uh, yeah, it's, that was before a trail centre even popped up. So it yeah. predates that. Uh, and then moved to the yeah, and then moved to the Wirral, which is you know not not too far from uh, from that that Welsh border. Um, yeah, because you Mersey died. I imagine it's about what, probably 45 minutes over there. You still get to Landegla from you, maybe maybe a bit yeah, more. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's about spot on. It's 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah, journey yeah. To, to go there from time to time. But uh, yeah, at the moment we can't go because of the lockdown reasons. No, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's probably something to mention is that. Um, uh, in case you miss it when listening to it, our listeners out there, that uh, we are recording this, and I think I've said this on a few other podcasts. Uh, yeah, I, it's feeling towards the end of the the COVID pandemic. Last year, I was asked; I didn't know whether it was beginning, middle, or end. But if fingers crossed, we're we're moving towards the uh, the uh, a bit of light at the end of the tunnel at this point. Yeah, definitely. Um, the early two thousand and twenty one. Um, and funny, it's when you just said there about you fifteen or maybe twenty years when I moved back. I think that's a sign. Um, I'm the same. I keep looking at stuff going, well, I was only about 10 to 15 years ago and find that it's 25 years ago. <laughs> it's quite uh, quite surprising sometimes on that. So, yeah, so living up in the, and, and I could talk to you about Landegla and the mountain biking things, because the cafe, if nothing else, at, at Landegla can keep you a conversation for a good half an hour. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, if you're not into into cycling or, or walking, you know, the, uh, the cafe is worth a visit just, yeah. just on its own. Yeah, absolutely, and I've been there, and we might as well give them a plug. One Planet Adventures, isn't it? And they're that's uh, right. That's yep. Yeah, it's fab. They've got a lot of stuff there. The food's great, and the actual whole area. If you're in the local area and you've not heard of it, go and grab some time there. I, I've walked, I've run around there, and I've cycled a little bit around there. I've fallen off nearly as well. So, but that's uh, yeah, it's a lovely place. Um, so, um, with that, are you? Have you got family? Are you yes, married? yeah. Um, got a, got a partner Louise um, I've got two kids from my first marriage and uh, Louise has two from her first marriage so we have four, four children ranging from, from nine to 13 so uh, yeah busy, busy household yeah I was gonna say that's that sounds like a busy minor I've only got the two and they're nine nine to 14 and they're busy and noisy enough as it is so <laughs> so when you you said you were born and, and, and grew up in in the Stevage Stevenage area um what what was it um what was it you wanted to do when you were growing up there was, and i asked this to everyone and suggest it a little bit tongue-in-cheek did you always want to be a project manager or in the project management field um well i don't think i'd ever heard of a project manager um when i was growing up and and you know sort of a, a early childhood it's the it's the traditional sort of trades and professions and sort of um, you know um, public servants, you know, like you know firemen, policemen, yeah. type, type things that sort of catch the imagination. Um, my my uh, my dad was a um, telecoms engineer, so was always involved in in sort of new technology and so on. So that that you know clearly caught caught my interest you know quite early on. Um, also had um, the uh, um, the good luck that the school I went to was uh, one of the 
the pilot schools for, for putting technology into schools. So we actually had a, a computer lab in, in, in the early 80s. So it was, um, you know, it was, it was quite, quite rare. And so that got me interested in, in that. But I, I didn't really know. And, and it was uh, interesting when you sort of, you know, uh, you know your, your children sort of similar age to, to mine that, uh, that, you know, the, the older ones are going through their career um, guidance and having discussions yeah. about know um options you know, uh, yeah you know and what that opens up to you yeah. and, and i i really didn't know and and so you know i i just selected some you know fairly generic um you know um, courses that didn't close anything off but but kept most options open uh and and even then when i um you know left school and and went to uh um you know and, and further education i did a maths degree and, and that was because it was still fairly neutral and, and most jobs would get you know you, you could get into most jobs unless it's very narrow like you know um, medicine or something but but you could you could do most things with a maths degree so and, and also it was one uh, i guess in, uh, another uh, trait um if, if you sort of get something like maths you don't actually have to put huge amounts of effort into it so i chose i chose a a degree that um you know, it wouldn't require me to, you know, spend huge amounts of time on, um, and, and meant I could, you know, get the other benefits of, of going away um, to, to university as well. So, you know, it's, it's, a, a tactical choice. On yeah. that one as well. I suppose yeah. uh, that's kind of reminds you. I remember because I, I didn't end up personally didn't end up going off to university. A friend of mine went off to do an accountancy degree. I think he ended up in Milton Keynes or somewhere like that. So. Um, and he ended up doing, a, I think he said he had nine hours of lectures a week. And then the rest of the time was all self-study stuff. And he was chuffed to pieces with that. And I'm, I'm guessing his maths, is was maths a similar sort of thing, was it? It's quite a, a load. Well, yeah, it was more um, lecture and tutorial based, if, if I recall. It was mm. something in the region of, it was closer to 20 hours, I yeah. think, which was uh, which was one of the higher uh, um, you know, um levels of, of tuition right. from from the various degrees you know colleagues and you know friends that, that i had at the time um but but the tutorials were, were very um you know um, uh, um specific so if you were working on something you knew what you had to do and, and you knew when you'd finished um yeah. uh, so yeah the the, the ones because i did sociology as a as an a level um which which was i found really interesting but but you could spend hours and hours and hours, you know, when you're doing your reading and, and your and your, you know, and your analysis, and you can go off into a, another tangent. It's the sort of thing I now really enjoy. But but as a 16, 17, 18 year old, you know, you wanted to to, to do your study and then get off and go out. Um, yeah, and, and so yeah, uh, sounds like the precursors of the project management mindset in some ways. Of you want to you want to be able to complete and finish the work that you've done and know that right, you've done yeah. It being that sort of task oriented and having a definitive outcome a right answer or a wrong answer was uh, I yeah. guess you know early on in my career I was less comfortable with sort of ambiguity and, and things whereas um, you know after a while we become more comfortable with you know sometimes there isn't a correct answer and you have to then you know work through what's the, the next best thing that you can get a, yeah. you know get you know, get in place yeah. um, the old, the old yes, least so worst. <laughs> the least worst or the uh, the next best optimal yeah. uh, uh, option um yeah so i, I didn't really um you know, know to you know have have a specific uh thing in mind i, I knew the sort of um, work i'd like to be involved with and uh, i was very lucky we had um uh, uh, icl international computers limited mm -hmm. as it was uh, used to be known and, and then it was acquired by um, uh, stc a telecoms firm who then sold it to fujitsu 
Um, that all happened in, in the space of a few years, but but they had one of their, well, they had several sites um, in Stevenage and and, and around in, in Letchworth and Hitchin as well. So there was a cluster of, um, of, of facilities um, and, and technology firms in and around Stevenage at the time. So very lucky. So I approached them when I was in the sixth form, um, said I'm going to university, doing maths, interested in in doing something in in you know technology space, but don't quite know. Would would you um, sponsor me? And, and they did. And and I was really lucky when I graduated as well. Um, the graduation, you know, the graduate program, they they you know they were looking for rounded uh, um, people when they moved into their final uh, um, career choice. And so you know you had um, you know effectively four placements of six months in different roles. So you did yeah. you know in, in in development, in sales, and and so on. Um, and and uh, you know I was I was assigned to sort of software development teams in, in on major projects, um, and, and that's how I got my first taste of projects. Um, uh, and it was also where uh, I enjoyed um, the, the, the software development work, but what I didn't enjoy, I, I'd spent in the end I spent one year on one project, um, but I never met a customer once, um, and, and didn't really have much connection between the elements of the system that I was working on and the overall solution. It was for a, a transatlantic telecoms cable, you know, one of the, the early fiber optic cables. Um, and it was the supervisory system. So it's very complex. And actually, it's, you know, it's, it's still working now. I've, I've, I've looked it up a, a few times to see, see how it's doing. <laughs> uh, a big bit of infrastructure. But so I got the sense of what the purpose of the whole system was, but but you didn't really, you know, well, I didn't get that that connection. So, you know, with, with each move, I, you know, I, I did sit down with our um, HR lead, who were very, very good and looked after the graduate program and said, you know, well, this is what I'm getting out of, this is what I'd like to do. And, and actually the, the two things weren't necessarily um, aligned in terms of I was actually quite a good software engineer. And so they had me earmarked for sort of a fast track program on the software side and I was like well, I don't enjoy it <laughs> so, so could I do something else and so they, they moved me to sales for a while and then on to major bids and I really enjoyed the, the major bids because of the you know the, the timeline with it there's a you know there's, a, there's an end point it was very customer focused you really had to understand what the customer's needs and wants were and, and to portray what what um, you know what our solution is compared to you know competitors so, so that that aspect of it was you know it was really exciting and then there's that win or lose you know towards the end and then you go if you you know you get selected through the negotiation steps so it was, it was great um but then I, I then did a quick sideways move from there into into the, into one of the project teams and, and and found that really interesting so you know my reward you know that, that i got personally was uh you know the the lack of routine you know that, that you get through through project work where you, know, you go through different phases of a you know of the project life cycle it's all it's all different you've got different types of interaction uh, with people and that real focus on on the end the end user or, or client in, in in those days um you know for that that client for that organization is that what's that's what drew me in into into projects is that i didn't really know what i wanted to do and then i found something that actually this does you know tick all my boxes of things that, that motivate me and and uh, you know it plays to my strengths yeah so with with moving into that um uh sort of into those projects and doing those um roles what what was that into project management straight away or was that into sort of part of the team in a more generic role or were you given the leadership role fairly straight on no it's um uh, the, the role that um that we had there was project coordinator okay um so it's the uh 
you know, um, direct support for the for the project manager, uh, and and then uh, you know the time. So we're talking sort of early nineties now. Mm. Um, we we actually you know the the organisation had career pathways even you know um, as you know project management um, as a as a job family, which you know I've I've you know having spent you know thirty years since as a um, as a consultant, I've not come across that many organisations that. Um, that they recognise the value of, of defining project management as a, as a job family and, and putting in long-term career pathways uh, for, for people, and and the the organisation as well had uh, had you know, grades that you could get all the way up to to board level, uh, and you could get to board level from from any of the professional disciplines that they had mm. in place. It was it was very well well set up. Um, Yes, I don't know. I've I've always wondered whether I had rose-tinted glasses of, um, of 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 sort of my first love of my <laughs> my first employer, or, or whether actually they were very very good. Um, but uh, I think well, it's probably more more the latter or a mix of the two. Yeah, and I think I think my experience is that there was a few. I think it's to do with the scale of the organisations, wasn't it? Really, and I think when you've got people like ICL, you'd have had IBM and similar to those, and mm-hmm. and and other large organisations like that. And coming out of the 80s and into the 90s they were they were already doing lots of change uh, as as an organizational imperative weren't they that was just part of what they did um whether it be for the customers whether it be for themselves and that whereas i think and i don't know if you, you you'd agree but the most organizations now most businesses need to be project focused to a greater or lesser extent but um you look at the successful businesses and their their project they're technology led a lot of the time which means they're inherently project led by being um up to date with um the latest technologies and the latest competitor stuff so i wonder whether that's that's part of what's changed it was the fact that it's the number of projects if you you're only going to succeed in a project oriented organization if you've got good quality project management disciplines and people haven't you and therefore if you don't if you don't look after them and look for them and, and nurture them then you're never going to have those right people are you so it's kind of a reflection right. yeah yeah i think you're right where you've got those sort of project oriented or, or project-based you know, organizations and, and clearly where you've got organizations that um you know earn their income out of you know business to business client contracts yeah. then the most likely you know fulfilled in a um uh, in, 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 a, in a project's uh, way, uh, but even the sort of the R&D and the product development uh, mm. was, you know, followed project life cycle. Uh, even if it was a product development life cycle, it was still managed as, as a project, you know, with investment points and gates and go-no-goes. Um, Excellent. So what, you, you mentioned that you moved into that project organization after doing the bids and I, don't want to preempt your answer on this but what what do you remember as being your the first project that was yours to run first project that was your fault if it failed <laughs> um yeah well i think the first project where you know i i you know yeah i, I was uh, <laughs> it's my fault for glory or otherwise yeah uh, it was uh, it was a retail project um and, and 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 you know that's a few few years later where um, you know the the, the organisation that uh, I was now working for, which is one that uh, I helped set up, uh, uh, we had a lot of clients in the st- still technology oriented doing technology deployment, um, but you know with the 
millennium uh, bug approaching, so it's sort of late mm -hmm. 90s now. Lots of the retail um, sector were doing their technology refresh early um, in order yeah. to, you know, uh, um, overcome uh, those issues. And there were also, um, there'd been a rush through the 90s for the EPOS systems, so moving away mm -hmm. from you know the the price ticketing of of items on shelves to um, to barcodes and scanning them at the till that was a change that took place in the big supermarkets you know through the sort of the early 90s uh, really or even the late 80s into the early 90s but but the sort of the laggards of the sort of convenience stores the petrol forecourts and and so on uh, and the sort of the niche and boutique uh, retailers were, were still doing it in, in the mid 90s so so uh, you know we 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 my company at the time supported a lot of those um so there might be say a 20 or 30 store rollout and um you know i i, I managed one for a uh, for, for one of the convenience um uh, chains yeah and that that was that was interesting project so we we were doing that for um so we were doing you know the project i had was the deployment so it was a uh, um, an, an indirect one uh, as such so there was a an end client there was a a technology company that was that, that sold the system and we were the implementation partner that, that right, uh, yeah. then went around did the site surveys and, and did the installations and so on um, yeah mm. so we had two, two two layers of stakeholders if you like and, yeah uh, and, and and also even at low you know even at a per store level there, there were differences from you know store a to store b to store c um, yeah yeah. yeah, I know. So I think, I mean, it's kind of like that, that whole thing of where you have a different configuration, I suppose. Again, when you're talking about the actual client at the end, it's, it's, it's the having worked in Woolworths um, in, the, in the 80s. Um, I kind of think back, it's kind of like it's the, it's the person on the till that's going to the end customer at the end of the day who's got another customer, their customer trying to buy something off them, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. And uh, if the damn thing doesn't just beeps and doesn't, um, uh, work it's it's uh, frustrating at the best of times so yeah sorry it just it puts me in mind there because um uh, i i think i get the feeling you're of a similar age to me um and uh in the 80s i don't know if you remember uh quick saving in the uk uh yes quick save is kind of one step away from a cash and carry in many ways isn't it and just i remember the thinking back now we know the people who worked at the tills who they had to remember who was a bit like the uh, taxi knowledge in london where they had to know the price of everything as it came by and they just rattling and keying it in there was, wasn't even stickers oh, yeah, on there the, saying the, the price the manual price entry on the tills yeah, yeah. and you just yeah. think back now and they think uh, even when i was there because it still had the prices on there um but having to remember all of the the prices of everything in your shop and being able to uh, enter it in. Um, either it was brilliant or there was lots of mistakes. I don't know which. <laughs> Probably the last. Yeah, and, and, and that, as a sector, it changed you know, massively and rapidly. So you know, I mentioned yeah. I, I worked in Ireland um, and that was a retail, um, well, a set of retail projects. Then that's mid 90s. And we actually uh, implemented uh, for a, a news agents. Um, so think of a, an equivalent to WH Smith's, but but an Irish version. Okay. Um, but we, we were putting in um, uh, um, self-scanning um, systems um, <laughs> in, in the mid '90s, and it didn't really take off because yeah. it was a, it was a classic case. The technology was was there, you know, um, you know that that time ago. But the 
the acceptance of it wasn't there. So, you know, the customers didn't didn't want it. You know, they still wanted to go and have the conversation at the till and and you know for someone to to do that for them. They yeah. wouldn't be um, the benefit to the end customer of of scanning things and getting it right <clears throat> and then you know going up to you know just to settle your basket and then then leave it didn't take off uh, but that's crazy the, yeah well the difference isn't there between um you know what's what's what can be done uh, and, and then having the the right time for something to be done yeah yeah and i think it's 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 kind of um the I suppose it's it's the convenience, isn't it? And and whether the convenience of doing it yourself and self-scanning, or letting someone else do the scanning for you, um, I, I, yeah, I, I, do, is it because of the number of people in supermarkets now is more than it used to be at that time, and then the news agents and stuff? I don't know. It's, it's just be. Well, or, sure. or the uh, the customer expectation has changed. You know the. Yeah. Um, you know, um, people used to tolerate you know queuing at a checkout yeah we don't really anymore you know if, if there's two people there's one person being processed and one queuing you know <laughs> we don't yeah. really tolerate that anymore whereas you know um, before it was common to have three or four people queuing uh, at the yeah. checkout so so again it's the uh, you know those those user expectations uh, have changed but you know for, but the self-scanning wasn't necessarily done to to speed up the process for the user it was to reduce the number of cashiers in a <laughs> Yeah, in, yeah, in a site, and and it was a it was a cost, uh, a cost saving initiative. So it's possibly it was trialed and implemented in the wrong way. Mm. Um, I imagine, I suppose, when you think about, it, I can't remember which one of the two markets it was. I remember seeing that they'd um, quite some time ago. It's kind of if there's more than one person in front of you at a queue, we'll open another till. However, I can't remember what it must might be a while ago that. So I suppose that sort of thing drives that as well. As you say, if if you've got supermarkets that are doing that, that means there's only ever one person in front of you. So as you say, the costs there of having enough people to be able to jump on all of the tills at any drop of a hat in order to meet that expectation. Well, the way to get around that is self-scan, isn't it? Because then you reduce the likelihood of you having to queue for a lot longer. And then I suppose on the flip side now, we've got the the whole um, the COVID scenario of what if you can self-scan, that's one less person who's touching your stuff um, from a point of view of, of um, keeping and protecting yourself as well. So again, I'm probably change the adoption as well to be a different way. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure all these sort of home deliveries, the, mm. the uptake in that, that's, I mean, they've been around for, for 10 years now, haven't they, yeah. home deliveries, but the, the, the massive uptake in home deliveries from the first lockdown in the UK, uh, I suspect, um, you know, not many people then switched them off, um, that they kept no. them going. Um, and and now they're just, right. it's, it's, it's normal. So uh, you know, those changes of behaviours are, are interesting and, and you know, um, you know, challenging for, for, for project decision makers, aren't they? Because if you're, you know, midway through rolling out <laughs> another five stores, you know, if, if you're a retailer and, yeah. and actually you don't need the same floor space in, in, your, in your supermarkets because most of the stock's going from your, you know, from your warehouse out the back into a van and, in, and into local distribution. Yeah. Um, so it does, uh, it does make you wonder, wonder whether, um, again, the, the, like you say, that convenience of, of, and we've done the same, to be quite frank. This lock, last lockdown, we didn't so much because obviously there was a lot of demand um, on the delivery slots. Um, and I think the, the for, certainly for us, we were local Morrisons, they weren't quite geared up for the 
the volumes. Um, but now they seem to be, and we've started to use them. Um, whilst it costs you a little bit more, that convenience and peace of mind. And I think that, um, I suppose it depends on how our, our, our movements change over the next six, 12 months, is the more people are staying at home, the more um, uh, disposable income you've got, and you're more likely to pay for that little bit extra or pay for that delivery charge if there is one. Um, to get stuff um, brought to you because, or, or we, we've actually did the click and collect which is even easier in my view because it's there and you just drive in grab it and you're gone it's it's a journey but it's a two-minute job then you're shopping isn't it um, and uh, I've even started to the point where a little while getting my beer delivered um, I'm a big brew dog fan and uh, just the, the convenience of logging on the beer gets delivered it's cheaper than buying it from the shop. Yeah. <laughs> Come straight to my house. Fair enough. I think uh, one of the delivery companies managed to burst one of the cans. They still worked out cheaper. <laughs> but, and it's kind of like, you think um, it, it's all about what that user convenience is. And I, I can see those. I can imagine the situation where a lot of those stores that you're on about that potentially open up or are already opening, that will be, the floor space will be drastically um, reduced and half of those buildings will be a warehouse as you say and it's going to be mainly bringing in your robots like Argos but for food because you're going to be yep. getting it shipped out the back and it's going to be quicker to do it that way um, than having to one have the shopper wander all the way not the shopper the picker wander all around the shop isn't it that's They're right and then, then the you know the shop floor space will probably be given up to concessions and so on yeah. Um, so there's still a reason to go there because you can go and get your your photos or your prescriptions or or other things whilst you're in the in the, in the supermarket. Yeah, those those less commodity um, activities and more experiential or advice mm -hmm. and guidance and that kind of thing where you you bring it up. Um, and it, I suppose it kind of leaning back to the the old thing of the. Um, what they called um, department stores in some ways, but in a different vein, if you like, less at that premium end, but more of a um, a mix. Don't know. Retail, retail is is one area, and I think in change is obviously from what's happened over the next two to three years is going to be enormous. I think the amount of um, rethinks and ad adaptions they're going to have to make, and probably already have been making, I guess. Yep. So thinking about you and your project management career, and we talking, we mentioned you're in the major, you're the executive director of the major projects association. What is the, the largest project that you managed? And when, when I say largest, I, I don't mean necessarily pound shillings and pence. I don't necessarily mean users, pieces of kit, lines of code. What, number of epos um uh items it's what felt um most significant to you um and, and what what were the key things that you learned from that project yeah well i've, I've worked on you know a, a lot of very large uh, projects um but often as an advisor or you know part of a, of a project team through through different stages of my my career but in terms of uh, where I've been 
know, the the leader uh, as such. Then the uh, then the largest one I've worked on, certainly in, in terms of impact and also um, where I felt the weight of the project. Mm, yeah. <laughs> probably yeah. a good way to describe it. Yeah. It was the Prince 2 refresh. Uh, I mean, that yeah. took, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, the project time of that was, was two years. Um, but in terms of the end to end, it was nearer three years from doing some of the early investigation work um, before the, the scope was defined and then the authoring work kicked off proper. Um, we, 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 we did use a, an agile approach. So we did you know, uh, iterations and, and increments um, uh, through, through it. Um, uh, and then, then moving on to the, if you like, the deployment, you know, the, the launch and, and, uh, and, and transition from the, the older version of Prince2 to the 2009 version of Prince2. So that, that was one in terms of where, where I did feel uh, the, the weight of that, that project. And, and, and say it was, it was something that had to have, you know, the entirety of my thought <laughs> pretty yeah. much all of the time for, for nearly three years. Um, and you know the, the weight of that that project was um, was a number. I mean, it was the number of people impacted by it you know, um, was was high, just in terms of um, you know the number of you know existing users of Prince Two that yeah. would either carry on with the you know how how they were using it before, or would look to you know um, get the upgraded you know the updated guide and, and see if they would want to apply. The newer version of Prince 2, uh, either in their organisations overall or, or just on their own project, but then there's the, the you know the, the broader sort of um, I'll call it an ecosystem, but that's the wrong word. But the, yeah. the broader system um, that, that surrounds it of the the training companies, the the, the exam uh, providers, you know the, the tool vendors, um, you know that there you know that there's a lot, all the publishers that support it, you know that there's there's a lot. So in terms of um, you know the size of the team. In terms of the direct team was was a reasonable size but but not massive uh and you know we had you know five authors you know there was the exams team there, there was you know um uh, reviewers and so on but I, I think there was something like 300 to 400 people involved overall you know when we when we sort of um, did the name check you know towards the end it's a bit like the, the film credits you know when we started <laughs> to look at everyone that had been involved and, and make sure that they got acknowledged it, it, it was it was you know, a large number, um, but but it was in terms of the, the impact, um, and and I was I was very mindful uh, of um, you know, that you know if if we were adding something new or changing something to how projects are, um, are managed using the method, um, then we pretty you know, we need to be very sure that it's better. Yeah. <laughs> that we're not necessarily introducing issues. And, and so on, and uh, yeah, so that, that was that aspect. And, and the, the other aspect is that um, you know, uh, you know I, I'm an advocate of, of Prince Two as, as a method. You know, it does does what, what, what you know what it's meant to do, um, but it isn't the only thing uh, that you need for good projects. So, you know, I, I, again, I was, I was very um, aware that you know, although I needed to be the advocate for it, and you know, so I still am. Um, but also need to, you know, to, to, to ensure that the position is that, you know, there are lots of other important things for successful projects other than, you know, the team following a method. Yeah, I think that's, it's one of the things that I've, I've um, yeah. the governance within project management is something that 
that sparked kind of the well the, the title of this podcast and as an as unyet written book um the sunday lunch project was the idea of, of having the right level of governance within a project mm-hmm. and you, you can follow following all of the tools and techniques of a of a um of a governance model doesn't equal a successful project to the end users that you're trying to deliver it for um and my view of it is always that it's it's the the and i've said it before it's the tools um you can teach people to how to use the tools in in any uh, uh industry but that doesn't necessarily make them a master of those tools because there's other things they need to bring to it. Um, the sculptor, you can teach someone how to sculpt something, but it doesn't mean they're good at, they can create a, a masterpiece or a good piece of work. Um, just means they know how to hit the thing in the right yeah. way. And, and it's a bit, I know it's a bit of a crude example, but I think it is, um, if using too much or not enough of governance is, is a very, um, it's a bit of the art of project management, isn't it? Of yeah, you're absolutely right, and you can't codify the art. Um, no, no. you can codify, you know, the practice and 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 some aspects of it, but but the art you can't. Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and give you, for example, if, if you can, it will end up being unwieldy to the extent that there's just so much noise around. Yeah, everything else is in there that that, that you know. Not even just the vast majority; almost anyone <laughs> would struggle to to apply it. And and you know, you, you talked about the governance aspects there, but just you know, by 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 way of one example, you know, in terms of the art of of, of it. So if we think about governance through you know, senior decision makers and, and and their involvement in a project, we, you know, whether it's Prince Two or or other you know, frameworks, there'll be yeah. a form of project board or steering committee or whatever it's called um, that that would be. You know, providing the direction and and um, holding the the team to account and, and so on. Now, if you've got you know uh, um, you know a senior decision maker that you know sends a delegate to, to one of your your key decision meetings, then you know for me the art is that that's, that's an alarm bell. You know, it starts to ring. <laughs> there might be an engagement issue, or you know that there might be a, a support issue that perhaps the sponsorship. Might be going elsewhere and so on, and then if that happens two or three times in a row, you know, then, then you know, my, my my spider sense is now tingling massively, <laughs> and, and and actually I'll be questioning whether you know I should carry on the project, you know, and I would then you know prompt to go and have a proper conversation to say, you know, either this project's important or it's not. If it's not, fine, I'll find another one to, to work on, or, or we should be shutting it down in a controlled way. Yeah. You know, but what you can't have is sort of passive support of, of something when you're implementing change. So, you know, that's that's all art, isn't it? That, that's not hmm. something you can put into something like a Prince 2 manual and say, you know, check how many times your senior execs turning up or, yeah. or or their degree of engagement if they if they turn up, but they're not really present or they're not really, you know, asking the right questions. And it is you know, that they're, they're, that side yeah. of it where you're saying you 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 go and have a word with them and you discover contextual stuff that's going on around the rest mm. of the organization that makes you go oh no they still this still is important to them potentially yeah but, but there's other plates that are about, yeah, <laughs> they're spinning yeah, they're about yeah. to fall on the floor and, and they're just focusing on those first you know and which then, is fine yeah then you can put it put things in place where you can go okay fine don't come to those meetings 
we'll have a conversation. You know, you can do there's a number of different things you can do, aren't there? That can, um, and again, that's not going to be something that you can, as you say, codify. It'd be something we go right, right. This this person's up to their gills. They're not. They've got too many meetings. Um, that hour meeting at our sponsorship meeting, right? What, how do we change the structure of that meeting so that they can come for 15 minutes, be fully engaged for 15, and then go? And that, and you can swap it around that way, couldn't you? And and um, there's a depending on the nature of the the issue that they have, and it might just be that they. Some I know there's some situations where you'll have people who don't turn up because they trust what's going on. They know you've got a handle on it, and they don't feel they need to be there because you've got it. Which is great to hear, but it, it, with the absence of hearing that, it, it makes you feel that there's probably the opposite, doesn't it? Straight away, you need to think of that that kind of risk management, pessimism sort of view of your stakeholder engagement. Yeah, and, and you know, and that's you know, sort of one of the indicators that you know that's used there is is confidence, um, and that's not something you've there, there isn't a universal scale for that. No. <laughs> you, you're, you know that's 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 subjective and you know it'll be a feeling you yeah. know that, that the uh, that the the person who is either having the confidence or not you know will, will you know it's something that they'll they'll come to review and and if you said to them you know how did you how did you come to that view of the degree of confidence they wouldn't give you a score out of 10 that's based yeah. upon some sort of formulaic approach <laughs> it'll be yeah. uh, you know it'll be indicator based um as to, as to why the, their, their confidence either increased or decreased. Yeah, I had a, I had a guy who worked for me who, um, who was, he was doing, uh, he was the architect, lead architect in, in the portfolio I was in. And I know we had a conversation once where he would send me something and I'd say, yes, approved. And about 15 minutes or something like that. And he'd come to me, you haven't read that. And I said, well, no, I haven't, to be honest. And he says, how can you prove it then? And I said, well, you wrote it. You, you are much more diligent than me. You are much better at this thing, this particular thing than me. Um, there's, I trust you. Um, what What's the point of me having you around and you doing this work if all I'm going to do is kind of go second guess everything? Um, because to be quite frank, it, he would have, he ran rings around me on that sort of, on the stuff we were talking about. So why wouldn't I do it? And, and I was willing to risk him making a mistake because I didn't think he would make a mistake or even if he had, I'm not sure I would have ever picked it up. And, and that's, again, it's that kind of different, different level of risk um, that people are willing to take as well. will change their level of confidence and engagement as well. Yeah. And coming back to the art. So the sort of nature yeah. of the conversation there can be, be around, you know, what are the elements of, of this request that's, that's worrying you the most, or, you know, are, are there areas there that perhaps we need to have a discussion on? Yeah. rather than discussing it all or reviewing it all yeah that's it yeah if he highlighted this is it this bit i'm a bit twitchy on yeah yeah it's it, it and as you say it is art isn't it so thinking about that one with the principal what did you learn from from that what was the major thing that you learned from that project yeah there were there were lots of learnings <laughs> that project. Um, so uh but, but one was of there the a lot of volunteers that, in that in that as well there are a lot of interested people, yeah, and and in terms, of, yeah, in terms of the the contributors, there were lots of unpaid uh, yeah. um, people that were, you know, spending their own time. Which adds you know, another dynamic, of, doesn't it? Yeah, of, of reviewers and and so on, and uh, and there were a, a large number of people through the various sort of forum um, 
forums that were in place that were sort of pseudo gatekeepers on on some content as well. Um, but one of the things that I did learn, and I think, you know, um, was um, early engagement with with stakeholders um, and and keeping them involved, and also um, on something like that where um, you know perception was quite important that what we were doing. So you know, give a bit, another bit of context. I mean, you, you you may be aware, but for but for, for the listeners who, who may not be, but the, the previous you know um, author, there'd only been one lead author, had been the lead author since the beginning, and it'd been around for quite some time, you know, and he, he was massively respected, um, and and you know he was he, he was great, you know, but there was a, a handing over, and, and so it was it could have been very easy, you know, for there to have been a perception that. You know, this next version was, uh, you know, was um, not as good as the original one, or it's the handover from one you know, um, lead author and an authoring team to, to the next. You know, we did a few things that, you know, um, visibly made it quite different. So, you know, the brief that we had was to um, broaden its applicability to to all types of projects, which was the brief to, for the for the previous version. To be fair, but. There was some legacy content in there, and you, and you may recall that the the process model that sits in Prince Two uh, used to have codes. So each of the the, the principal processes had, had a number of sub processes, and, and each of those had a, had a code. So it would be the starting up a process. You know, the the second sub process in there would be SU two and, and SU three and, and so on. And and uh, you know the, the for, for a number of reasons that we wanted to remove those codes you know we, we had an ambition to have plain English and we also had an ambition to appeal to a broader audience not you know and there was a view that those codes led to it being more uh, um, appealing to an engineering type yeah. you know, um, audience so that's something one thing we did and, and so we had to sell that to you know a, a lot of people that were really bought into those codes I mean you if you went on some training course at the time you were taught about codes, not, not yeah. about you know, the other project management aspects. And, and that's not necessarily knocking those, those training companies because that was a very efficient way of getting people to, you know, to remember it and then to pass the exams. And that was the, the measure of their, their success. So, you know, we, we, we had to, you know, um, you know to, to, you know, to, to make sure that the, that the broadest group, the old group and the new group we wanted to engage with, you know, that came, came with us. And so one of the things that, that, I learned as soon as I, I um, detected some resentment or some uh, um, move towards that, you know, it'll never work. You know, <laughs> um, the old way was great. You know, um, when I started to, to, to pick up on, you know, who were the biggest critics and they were easy to spot um, through the review process and through you know, uh, articles that were being published and, and so on, that I just got them involved. You know, because we had lots of volunteers, it was actually really easy for me to get them involved. So rather than sort of um, you know, falling onto that sort of siege mentality and, and seeing them as, a, as an enemy, we said, OK, well, you know, there's no point. They're not going to go away. There's no point in dealing with them at the end of the project. Um, so let's get them involved and, and make them part of the project. Uh, and, you know, some of the biggest critics became, the, you know, become the, uh, the biggest supporters and, and the biggest advocates of what we were doing. Um, so that was my, my number one lesson, really, which was, um, you know, get your critics on board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, that you're far better than having them inside the tent <laughs> than outside yes. the tent. Yeah, I know, you, the, like, I know the saying that you were thinking of there. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's another Don Corleone one, isn't there? That's equivalent, but yeah, uh, I think so. The enemy's closer, but that that makes yeah. it feel like a battle, and it wasn't a battle because yeah. you know critics have you know have, have justified you know reasons. You know people yeah. don't behave irrationally. You know there there are rational reasons why they they don't like the change or or the, or they're fearful of the change. Yeah. Um, so, so don't treat your critics as enemies. You know, just find out why they're being critical and 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 and, and help them understand. And, and my my, I had the opportunity then to get them involved. So so that that's how I overcome that. You know, other other projects don't necessarily have that opportunity. But you know, but finding a way of understanding the the cause of the the criticism, I think, is important. Yeah, and sometimes it's it's very it's a communication thing, isn't it? Where someone may not understand why you're doing something in, in that scenario. And then when they find out why you're doing it, they're going, well, that's the right thing to do then. Um, it's the right way to do it. And, uh, but, but not unknowing it, it can look, not knowing the reasoning behind something, it can look like the, the mm. strangest decision you could ever think of, can't you? And uh, yeah, I'm intrigued that she was, what, what was the, if, if you like, the install base of Prince 2? at the time that you'd estimated when you were using that. So your actual users of Prince 2 around the world. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i sure you would have had a guesstimate there. Yeah, yeah, we, we did, but I, I can't quite remember it. <laughs> but it was, but I, I'm sure we had an estimate of, um, I mean, it was, it was many hundreds of thousands, I think even at that stage that had Ooh. taken the Prince 2 exam. And, and I think there was an estimate at the time, it was, it was getting on towards a million people that were, yeah. You know um that would be used you know that, that would be managing projects um that either directly followed prince 2 or they had an in-house you know methodology yeah. or, or framework that was based on prince 2 um yeah but we, you know just in terms of the number of exams that were sat it, it was a quite quite a large number at the time and also um the other the other way was um the, the publisher uh, did did have some stats on the number of books sold, and and again, um, it was a few hundred thousand even at that that stage. Yeah, yeah, because I was thinking that that's the thing, isn't it? You and you can't cut, you can't, um, you've got to cater for, but you can't necessarily uh, simply go around to all those guys and check, uh, get a load of user stories from those guys. Can you on on, on what you want, what they see and what they find yeah. as difficulties? But but it's and as you say, the 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 basis of that do no harm sort of view uh, with the next step of it yeah uh, and the you know the, the the community that was easiest to engage with and therefore it would have been easiest to have um uh, taken their views as the, the principal view uh, what was the training community you know and, and yeah. or the training and consulting community um you know now they did have the views of the end users because they were spending time with them you know in classrooms and, and so on but it meant that if we only engage with the training community we were we were one step removed from from the end yeah. users uh, and also that there were different motivations in, in, in play both positive and negative you know so mm. the negative one would be you know the the impact of changing material and and, and so on and, and you know some of them resisted uh, from, from that perspective and you know and, and, and rightly so you know because mm. these weren't necessarily big organizations and you know to spend a lot of money on on changing something and, and yeah. it may be done where they wouldn't necessarily see an increase in 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 orders it was was a view um but at the same time when you know when we were saying well you know the a basis of this change is that um it will open it up to you know to a bigger audience you know not just you know the, the engineering type 
community um you know they, they were seeing the upside yeah. and then also in terms of the process that we took at the time which was um to be very sort of um uh, um, not PR driven, but to be, um, you know, uh, outwardly facing. So we did a lot of comms around the project, and um, you know, that's where I started blogging. Actually, <laughs> it's, uh, was um, you know, doing some articles around why we were doing things and so on. That, that created a lot more, you know, demand. And, and so by the time it was launched, there was a lot of pent up demand for, for the new version, which was you know, good for, for all of those involved parties that you know were, um, used it as a part of their income streams. Yeah. Because obviously there's the new people, but also the the refresh training as well. I guess um, was was an opportunity for them in those. Yes, scenarios. that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and there's also a fear that um, you know there's, it's a double-edged sword at the, the time, which was um, if if you make it out to be vastly different and vastly better, then you have a drop off <laughs> of, <laughs> of, of um, you know in that sort of three months or so prior to a launch, um, there yeah. could be a drop off. Um, so, you know, how, how do you say it's actually a lot better, but actually it, it's backwards compatible. So it'd yeah. be easy to move on. And so, you know, a lot of them were, were then, uh, you know, sort of doing bridger training, which is actually if you if you book a bridger training course in the next three months, you know, after the new version's out, you know, we'll do a refresher and an update. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we, we you know, um, but but that, that came through lots of conversations and understanding what those those concerns were. And I say that. Uh, my my, uh, my approach was that I, I, you know, I just identified the most vocal uh, and the most listened to, uh, and, and and contacted them and said, look, you know, can I get you involved? Yeah, standard and stakeholder management, isn't yeah. it? I hope you really enjoyed that first part of the conversation with Andy. Um, next part will be out next week. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for being here. If you want to support the show, please, uh, there's loads of ways to do it, but sharing it with your friends, clicking a like, like on, uh, on on any of the Facebook posts I've got, um, if you can, or whatever you listen to this on, um, a bit of uh, um, review or, or um, a five-star rating or whatever the the relevant thing is on on the the, the particular platform, and uh, I couldn't think what the word was. Then. And then um, that's one one way of supporting us. Other ways include uh, grabbing a copy of any of the, the books. Uh, check out the website nigelcruz.com uh, to find all the links to there. Um, there's some affiliate links to some of the books that I've talked about over the different episodes and the people we've interviewed as well. So grabbing a copy through there and I'll get a little kickback um, we have a Patreon page, uh, thank you to those who subscribe, uh, donate there and um, yeah I think that's mainly it but the, the main thing is, is come back next time and uh, have a listen so with that point I'll leave you and have a wonderful February and uh, stay safe thanks for your time, bye Well, it's goodbye from me, Nigel Creaser, and it's goodbye from him, the Sunday Lunch PM. Goodbye.